this is my lucky day, March 23rd. Oh, no, your lucky day is the 24th. What do you mean the 24th? It's 1.30 already. It's morning. Yes, and what a lovely morning. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning. to play the stars were shining bright now the milkman's on his way it's too late to say good night so good morning good morning sunbeams will soon Well, where should we start? Because I feel like these are two movies that Singing in the Rain and... I told you this was going to make a good double feature, and I was very right. Oh, yes. I I, I deny doubt you. Deny doubt you for one second. But where should we start? Let's let our guests pick, Greg. So which one would you like to talk about for Sunset Boulevard or Singing in the Rain? I think a good way to start would be to uh, go in order of when the movies are set chronologically. So Singing in the Rain mm. would come first. I like this approach. All right. Well, par- pardon me. Gotta dance. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was actually just watching that scene. Um, gotta dance, gotta dance. I am the Moses who supposes erroneously. <laughs> I, I will just say, Mark Rob, I'm so sorry. The impressions that are about to happen in, in this episode, at least for me, are going to be bad. Because the Lena Lamont impression and the Harley Quinn impression are the same impression. I was, I was um, going to say, they're really close. Very it's, close. It's, it's, a, it's, a damn, it's a damn shame that uh, this movie came out uh, 50 years before Harley Quinn was created and Gene Hagen unfortunately died long before the character was created and so yeah i guess she never fully knew the lasting impact she made with that voice (laughs) (laughs) and i can't stand him she was harley quinn before harley quinn (laughs) and i can't stand him did you guys ever see babylon i did not i meant to but the i did not mean to i chose not to (laughs) and stand by that choice (laughs) Uh, the, the 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 mixed reviews and the like three hour running time kind of turned me off of it. I have precious little time to watch movies as it is. And oh, uh, Mark, Mark Rob, dear dear friend, remind me the dates that you're up here again. My parents' place in Agunquit is right near a really wonderful regional theater, and they are doing Singing in the Rain for a month. Um, Holy shit! For the entirety of July. They're doing uh, June fifteenth through July fifteenth. Uh, are you going to go for your birthday? I think Greg and I are going to go. I don't know if it's going to be for my birthday or not, because going July 4th weekend to a tourist destination. Not the move. Usually not. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're already pressing our luck by going up there this weekend. Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Gotta dance. 
Well, the reason I asked about Babylon is because Singing in the Rain, like, heavily influences Babylon. Actually, I like Babylon. In my letterbox review, I described it as the last great cocaine movie. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I, I recommend watching it, but it is... I mean, uh, unless they give me a baggie so. on the way in, I don't think I'm going to do that. I mean, it's... <laughs> I, mean, I, I feel you, I feel you. But I was going to say, at least Margot Robbie, she's at least... Uh, it's actually funny, Margot Robbie is Harley Quinn now. And her character in Babylon is inspired by by the woman in Singing in the Rain. So it's this funny, like, weird full circle moment for her. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) I love you. 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 That was, uh, that was, that was rough. And Damien Giselle, he. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Do you guys quote this movie to each other? Just like back and forth randomly? Uh, uh, We do now. Uh, There it is. When we, after the first time we watched it together, yes. (laughs) <laughs> all right all right <laughs> that that, uh, that that voice she does for harley quinn now has multiple uses hey hey baby <laughs> all right so where, where do we want to start with singing in the rain where do we want to start i would just like to apologize to everyone who was personally victimized by gene kelly ever I feel oh, like that's me? a great place to start. Yeah. I, I was I was reading that shit, man. My man, he's kind of ruthless. He was, he's he's not like his characters the, at all. Yeah, the, the, this mean, movie. He he has this weird desire to be perceived by the public as like that guy, like the the Don guy. But also, Don kind of sucks until Cosmo slaps the shit out of him. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The, the, this, Basically, this, this is about to become a Cosmo apology podcast because Cosmo's the best and deserves so much better than how he's treated in that fucking movie. Yeah, no doubt. Cosmo is the unsung hero of the movie. Like, it's you know, it's his idea to turn the uh, dueling cavalier into a musical. He basically comes up with to with the plot to the movie within the movie. And, and then they kick him off the poster, but still have a third umbrella on it for Jesus. Um. <laughs> yep. That's it's funny you guys brought him up because I watched an American in Paris and oh, I actually, so good. I, I actually it's so funny. I think his friend, the Adam the Adam Cook character, he's my favorite character in that movie too. So it's interesting how Gene is like supposed to carry the movie, but the their other ancillary characters are I guess maybe quote unquote better than him in some respects. Gene Kelly is the god of like being objectively like good looking and fine, but having to have the most likable friends for a movie to sell. And I respect the hell out of that. Like he knows what it is and he is leaned in. He is all the way in on that. This movie is possible because Gene Kelly makes people suffer. And it's (laughs) make them laugh. The fact that the last third of that song has no cuts in it at all and no like things going across the screen. So he is jumping over couches and doing backflips into walls and over walls and through walls. And there are no cuts. And the fact that Donald O'Connor had to do that twice. uh, So the story says because the first time the footage was unusable. 
So Gene Kelly called him back and was like, we need you to do the whole running up the wall in a backflip thing again. Can you do it? <laughs> Gotta dance. And Donald O'Connor, who at the point, who at that time was smoking four packs of cigarettes a day and could barely move, was like, God, God damn it, Gene. Fine. I'm going to steal this movie from you anyway. Oh, shit. <laughs> Too real. It's, uh, so I was reading about the movie and Debbie Reynolds, who was a, a gymnast, not a dancer. Gene Kelly gave her hell. And she had a quote. That says singing in the rain and childbirth were the two hardest things I ever had to do in my life. So that's, that's a tough beat. Every every time I watch this movie, I think about the poor people who have had to be in the musical adaptations of this that do that choreography eight times a week. It's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. And yeah. also because it's live theater, they have to be live singing while doing it. It's not recorded and then dubbed in. Yeah, talent. So uh. Whoever whoever plays Cosmo has to do the ha 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 well actively backflipping and I think about that a lot <laughs> and I will think about that more when I see it again yeah. this summer because they did it like ten years ago. All right, yeah. you know it's like uh, like Gene Kelly would have wanted it. Gene Kelly, the crazy person, <laughs> would have well, wanted. Well, <laughs> when they did an American in Paris, I feel like they also went like bananas on it. And then everyone was like, well, that was fun. You know, the funny thing is, I think this qualifies as a hot take. I actually like An American in Paris more than Singing in the Rain, but there's like a massive problematic, massive problematic part in American in Paris that the movie cannot navigate and does not navigate. The main character, the actress, her character... (laughs) It's groomed. So she was like 14 or 15. And they like accept that. It's so crazy. It's so wild. When we get to Sunset Boulevard, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about grooming. <laughs> yeah, Hollywood. Hollywood is a land of terror. Hollywood is a we're, land of terror. We're gonna we're all right, so yeah, we're gonna put a pin in that and circle back to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Greg. Did you grow up with singing in the rain? Because me, like, it was something that's kind of like omnipresent, but I just never like sought it out to watch. I didn't really actively seek it out until my freshman sophomore year in college when I really started getting into films. The updated AFI Top 100 list came out at around that time, and so I made it a point to see as as many of those films as possible. It's it's how I fell in love with uh, with Sunset Boulevard. Singing in the Rain took a little bit longer to grow on me. Well, only you're because kind of a depresso bean. Yeah. <laughs> Are we and, all? Are we? Yeah. All? And also, just like my taste in comedy has uh, has evolved a lot since then. Like you know, now now like watching it watching it the other night with with Cat, I'm like, one of the first things I said was I forgot how funny this movie is. Were you a big like Broken Lizard guy in college? Big Euro trip. <laughs> Guy in college. Scotty doesn't know that Fiona and me do it in my van every Sunday. She tells him she's in church, but she doesn't go. Still, she's on her knees, and Scotty doesn't know. Oh, Scotty doesn't know. So don't tell Scotty. Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know. 
I was an Adam Sandler guy for a while. And, and now, of course, uh, now, now, of course, I only appreciate Adam Sandler if he's doing movies like Uncut Gems, where he actually has to flex his acting muscles and carry Uncut, a movie. Uncut Gems. <laughs> Cat, Cat, don't hide your face. It's a five what? St- Uncut Gems is a five-star movie. Yeah. Well, every everyone was caught up in the wave of Big Daddy and um, I'll, I'll be honest, Bobby un- Boucher. So un- uncut, uncut jams gave me anxiety vomit. So uh, well, uh, that means it worked. Well, uh, yeah, it also means I couldn't finish it. So uh, yeah. Oh, well, oh, so you never, uh, you never finished it? No, that's why I called you in the middle of the night and asked if we could cancel the episode. <laughs> oh, oh, damn, that's right. Uh, did you ever read what happened in it? It. No. Spoil it after. Okay, cool. Uh, cause uh. I assume look, things look. don't go well. They didn't really oh. seem like they were look. headed in a well direction. Look, look whenever, look, whenever, whenever you're ready, we can, uh, we can circle back to that movie. Cause I do plan I don't on really getting. I feel the need to put myself through that again. There's a Criterion sale right now, and I am planning on getting it on 4K. So. I'm so happy for you. You for <laughs> you. She's happy for you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think Cat's good to sit this one out. But to my earlier point, my sense of humor was I liked a lot of stupid shit. I get it. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 as, and as I've matured and watched more, I'll, I'll say tasteful comedies, you know, comedies that are considered more classic, like like Singing in the Rain, like Some Like It Hot, which still hold, which still hold up and are very funny. Like the nineties and the two thousands were literally just let's just do let's just do guys being bros and it, it made a shitload of money. It was super popular. So I, I, I get it too. Shout out to Road Trip. Unleash the Fury <laughs> Um, <laughs> um but Kat, what's what is your history with singing in the rain? Okay, so it's a little weird, but bear with me. In middle school, a bunch of my friends were trying to learn tap dance, so we all learned how to do Moses Supposes, which is fucking challenging. Supposes uh, are roses, my, but Moses supposes erroneously. I'm sorry. A really annoying <laughs> tap tempo. But anyway, so we we learned that, and I'd watched that sequence a bunch. But then I saw the musical in 2009 at the Agunqua Playhouse, and then I saw the movie sometime in college. So I saw it as a musical way before I saw it as anything else. And I was totally charmed by it. When you just see something, you don't immediately turn around and then go watch the movie version of it. At least I usually don't. I like to give it some time to marinate. And then I kind of, you know, forgot about it because I was busy. (laughs) Yes, understandable, understandable. And, And then I was just like, oh, that's the best. This is the best. I love this. (laughs) <laughs> and then that was pretty much the extent of my thought process on it. I go back and I watch it sometimes and I'm like, ah, it's the best. It's the best. This is the best. Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of folks our age are singing in the rain is like their favorite movie ever. And it was something that I kind of noticed people saying, but I was like, is it really that good? And turns out, I see the vision. I, I see why people would have, especially if you grew up with it. I can definitely see why this movie with the beautiful dancing and costuming and just imagination in the choreography and the storytelling behind it. Unlike an American in Paris, <laughs> uh, I, I definitely see why this would have been as what the kids call the bee's knees. 
Oh, actually, I take it back. I think my very, very first exposure was there was a sequence in the great movie ride at Hollywood Studios of a robot Gene Kelly hanging off of a light fixture. Holy shit. uh, Holding an umbrella. But I saw the great movie ride in like the last year or two it was open. So it looked like a dead body just like nailed to a lamppost. And I was like, that looks fun. Shout out to Jesus. Uh no, he was just nailed by one hand and one foot, so we were not doing yeah. Jesus. Uh-huh. Uh, shout out to Mickey Minnie's Runaway Railway, which is a better use of that space. <laughs> that ride fucks. <laughs> um, but it, it does make me laugh because I did realize, Jesus Christ, I have become so many people's Cosmo. I am everyone's. Oh. I am everyone's fixer who's there to be like funny and charming, and that's it. And like, <laughs> and and like, to, and to your point earlier, our generation will stand for Cosmo erasure. We come from a generation of Cosmos. <laughs> yeah, even even if the even if the central uh, relationship is Don and Kathy, and Cosmo is off to the side, we do not stand for Cosmo erasure. This is a movie that they they it should end with all three of them dating. <laughs> Hey, that, that would have been pretty yeah. interesting. <laughs> so why is he on the cover and then just, you know... What a great question, Mark! What a wonderful <laughs> question! Probably because it would complicate the 1952 audience that's pretending to be 1924! Yeah. I don't know, but I have a lot of questions! Yeah, yeah. Mo- movies in 1952 were not allowed to have polycules. But uh, also, yeah, he's on all the posters and... On the the DVD menu. <laughs> what? And he's well, not. And then he, and then in the the in canon movie poster, he's not there. But there are three umbrellas. But one of those umbrellas is the room for Jesus between the other two umbrellas, I guess. Hilarious. I think even Gene Kelly knew. Son of a bitch, Donald is the best part of this movie. I, I have to give him star billing. I will. I will just give credit where it's due. I did go ahead and look up the uh, credits for this movie when I saw it at the Gunquit Playhouse in 2009, and Cosmo was second build behind Kathy, and that oh, feels absolutely correct. Uh, so it's unanimous obviously that he is our favorite character from this but what do we feel about the other characters in the film okay i love don i think he is a really great character i love that the first whole sequence is him being like caught in a lie yeah not even like caught just like you see the reality you see the unreality and i think those two contrasts are great yeah, establishes right uh, from the get-go that he's just full of shit. But that yeah. also kind of makes me like him more. Yeah. At least we know who we're dealing with. Yeah. 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 In, in order, in order for this movie to work, Don at the beginning kind of has to be a dick. He kind of has to be high on his own supply and you know convinced that this current run of fame he's on is going to last forever. Yeah. I think he's still high on his own supply at the end, but at least he's contributing and not just absorbing. Yeah, because that whole dance sequence has nothing to do with the movie they're making. That's that's so but, that was so funny to me. Yeah, keep going. But he's contributing. He's adding something. He's not just absorbing the role that the studio has made for him. He's making new stuff. Yeah. And yeah. and he has the assuredness in himself to know it's gonna work, which is good. But like, I just think it's very funny that they're like, no, he's not high on his own supply at the end. And I'm like, motherfucker. 
he pitches a 10-minute dance sequence that doesn't even take place in the same century <laughs> as the rest of the movie. <laughs> it doesn't follow any, like, narrative arc of the movie. I, I have Gotta an idea. Gotta dance. <laughs> Gotta dance. Yeah. Motherfucker's got to dance. Like, that's, all, that's all it is, but it's great, though. It works. Yeah, they, they devote so much time to that uh, movie within a movie segment. Because, you know, the, the basic plot of singing in the rain is pretty straightforward and it really really doesn't command a lot of screen time and so they can they they can they can use whatever you know whatever time they want to just have fun on screen and be a showcase for gene kelly debbie reynolds and donald o'connor yeah i certainly like that like most movies if there were extended sequences that had little to nothing to do with the central plot you're like the fuck is this in here but well, at least they're able to ensconce yeah. this all in Don's ego. Yeah. <laughs> the Technicolor ego. <laughs> yeah. Here it works. He's making fun of Busby Berkeley, as is well documented, and uh, is just uh, just having fun with it. So, this does make me wonder, though, how did Gene Kelly and Bob Fosse feel about each other? I bet they hated each other. All right, I, I will Google that right now if there if there's literally any. There's there's a column from 1968 called "Thank You Gene Kelly for Not Directing Cabaret." Oh shit! Yep, that was the first thing I saw when it <laughs> uh, when it popped up. Ah! Yeah, I don't did anyone like Gene Kelly? <laughs> Yo. I mean, I think like. He had this very weird obsession with being likable by the public. Oh, yeah, yeah. His characters, like, never really do anything worse than, like, tell a few half-truths in any movie he's ever in. Yeah, that's the same thing as American in Paris. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. That's why I generalized. And American yeah. in Paris, also one of those shows where you see it live and you're like, Jesus Christ. yeah. Oh my god, I really appreciated. Oh my god, I gotta, I gotta get his name right. Oscar Levant, who's Adam in American in Paris. Yeah. That sequence where he's in the dream and he's like every piece of the band. Like that shit was so good. That was really fucking good, man. Well, so first of all, that you know, I know this person isn't going to listen to it because they're not a big podcasting person. But I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to my my parents' neighbor in Maine, Vernon who whenever we saw each other, no matter what time of the day it was, he would yell across the driveway, good morning, and I would shout back, good morning, because that was just our thing. Shout to Vernon. Come on the show. Yeah, Vern's the best. But I think that Kathy Selden is, like, the most best. Tell me, what's your lofty mission in life that lets you sneer at my humble profession? I'm an actress, what? on the stage. Oh, on the stage. Well, I'd like to see you act. What are you in right now? I could brush up on my English or uh, bring along an interpreter. That is, if they'd let in a movie actor. Well, I'm not in a play right now, but I will be. I'm going to New York. Oh, and you're going to New York. And then someday we'll all hear of you, won't we? Kathy Selden as Juliet, as Lady Macbeth, as King Lear. You'll have to wear a beard for that one, of course. Oh, you can <laughs> laugh if you want to, but at least the 
stage is a dignified, dignified profession. And what profession. have you got to be so conceited about? You're nothing but a shadow on film. A shadow. You're not flesh and blood. Oh, no. Stop. What could I do to you? I'm only a shadow. You keep away from me just because you're a big movie star, wild party, swimming pools. You expect every girl to fall in a dead faint at your feet. Well, don't you touch me. Fear not, sweet lady. I will not molest you. I am but a humble jester. And you, you are too far above me. Farewell, Ethel Barrymore. I must tear myself from your side. <laughs> all right. Speak on it. Speak on it. Why you feel that way? Yeah. So, first of all, I like that she's got these opinions, even though they don't match where they are. Like, she's got goals. She's got places she's trying to get. She's got stuff she's trying to do. And she knows that she's a step She's she's at least got a foot on the escalator. Yeah. And I truly love this. She is not afraid of anybody. Yeah. Don Lockwood appears in her car and she's like, he was trying to kill me. And the cop is like, you should be thankful he was trying to kill you. And she's like actively kind of annoyed. She's like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> It really parallels what Debbie Reynolds was doing in real life at the time. She was 19 when she worked on this movie and was waking up at 4 a.m. to take buses to the studio, work all day with Gene Kelly and dance until her feet literally started bleeding. Yeah. And just not giving up because she knew that this was going to be her breakout role. Debbie Reynolds really did the shit in this. I really liked her in this. But also, Lena Lamont is such a fun foil. (laughs) Because... We get two women who aren't willing to quit. Yeah. Which, for the time period, is kind of remarkable. Yeah. Lena Lamont, she's an antagonist. She's not a villain. Like, everything she does is out of desperation to save her career because it's literally, I imagine at this point in her life, everything that she knows. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, it's yeah. kind of implied that she reaches this point of fame, right? That for sure exists, and we'll we'll talk about that more, I think, in Sunset Boulevard. But she doesn't know how to be a real person anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The par- the parallels between her and Norma Desmond are many. There, there is a, a non-zero chance that like Lena Lamont is the Norma Desmond in the house next door. Like if he had <laughs> if he had pulled into the next door down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be her. Yeah, when you watch when you watch Singing in the Rain from the perspective of Lena, you come away from it thinking uh, she's gonna be Norma Desmond in twenty years. Well, yeah, except that it also omits a lot of the the stuff that they did do to try to keep those women involved, right? So like, Marnie Nixon is the name of a woman who used to sing and speak for silent era movie actresses and just actresses that didn't have the range to do the roles that they did. Right. So she sang for Natalie Wood in West Side Story and she provided a ton of the padding for My Fair Lady for Audrey Hepburn, which obviously isn't for a lot of years later. But like she was for a lot of people, those that transition point. Right. So, oh, I was I was very big before, like talkies and movies where I had to sing. There was a whole department for that. Yeah. You know, except for the ones that were already on their way out, which you could argue that Lena without Dawn probably isn't the draw, which is shitty, but like is a reality of being a female star in what, 1920? 1927, 1928 is when the movie's set. 
It's right after the jazz singer has come out. Right, okay. Which, it is weird seeing a movie talk about how, how big the jazz singer is. So, before we kind of wrap it up and do the pivot, because we're we're already, you know, throwing out Norma Desmond, so I'm really interested to talk about her character and, and that whole entire movie for Sunset Boulevard. But before we go, I'm guessing that the Good Morning Dance sequence is your favorite cat, but officially on the record, are you going to say that is your favorite dance sequence? Let's make them laugh. Come on now, snap out of it. You can't let a little thing like this get you down. Why, you're Donald Lockwood, aren't you? And Donald Lockwood's an actor, isn't he? Well, what's the first thing an actor learns? The show must go on. Come rain, come shine, come snow, come sleet. The show must go on. So, Reedy, Pagliacci, Reedy. Reedy, huh? Yeah. Don, the world is so full of a number of things. I'm sure we should all be as happy as. But are we? No. Definitely no. Positively no. Decidedly no. Uh-uh. Short people have long faces. And long people have short faces. Big people have little humor, and little people have no humor at all. <laughs> and in the words of that immortal bard, Samuel J. Snodgrass, as he was about to be led to the guillotine, make them laugh, make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad said, be an actor, my son. But be a comical one, they'll be standing in lines. For those old honky-tonk monkey shines Or you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh Make them okay. laugh Okay, oh, okay It's, it's really? make them laugh, it's always been make them laugh Yeah, I love a little bit of zaniness and and that is well uh, no actually you know what I take it back I take it back I fully take that back. <laughs> okay. It's fit as a fiddle. Okay. I love how zany and desperate and manic it is. Okay. I find that incredibly charming. Uh, but I also just like the who who is riding on whose back who is actually playing the fiddle in any given sequence because it changes. And the attention to detail in that number, which is a throwaway joke. Yeah, yeah. Is insane to me. I love Good Morning. It is it is like probably my favorite in my heart of hearts to listen to and hear and enjoy. But if I'm watching just one sequence of that real quick, it's it's gonna be fit as a fiddle. But also I... but also, when you look at Moses Supposes later, then this makes me very, very happy. Moses Supposes is fit as a fiddle in a different time signature. They're doing a lot of the same moves, just in in different tempo. Okay. So you can see they have like a grift almost. They've got a shtick, and they do the shtick, and this is their thing. And that oh. also just tells me a lot about their friendship, which makes me happy. And, and so the fact that and, it doesn't change until Kathy comes in is also really clever and nice storytelling. Yeah, and uh, and to your point, like I love Moses supposes. Uh, it is such a stupid song, <laughs> but like it, it's a it's a very stupid song. But I appreciate a musical that puts that puts a stupid song in there because it does it does serve the plot really well. Because what are they doing in that song? They're just they're just goofing off. 
they're just being bros, fucking with the diction coach, and just uh, fooling around because they're so sure that this conversion to sound is going to be easy. And so it's like, you know what? We're not going to sweat this, so we're just going to goof off. And then, of course, in the subsequent scenes, you, you, you see the uh, the stress on the director's face, which I absolutely love that performance, too. <laughs> but I can't make love to a bush! You have to talk into the bush! Hey, hey. The sound <laughs> goes through the wire and gets recorded on wax. What is this water doing on the floor? This is very unsafe. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> fucking uh, fucking hilarious. <laughs> it, it was it was pretty funny. I just like I to think... say for the record, I just did that scream and I did it at a pretty low volume, but my rabbit's ears just went. <laughs> I mean, don't don't blame her. Don't blame her. They are slacked um, down to her head. Uh, so I I had two favorite moments of of just kind of like the dance music within the Good Morning. Whenever they hop on the piano, they hop down and then they then like shimmy up the stairs like in 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 perfect yeah. unison. Yep. That, I think that was I think that to me was the most impressive dance of the movie. And I watched that sequence like probably eight or nine times i just like kept rewinding it 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 was it was really crazy in a good way and my second favorite one was when at the very end we kind of know he throws it to this like big lavish like you know chorus or whatever but then when they're in the pink casino room and then everyone clears out and they do that incredible dance with just the two of them with the, the wind blowing and like also gene kelly his tailor I hope that Taylor made a million dollars, the equivalent back then. Mm-hmm. Like he had, he had a lot of fucking, he had a lot of fits off. He had a lot of fits I, off. But I, I also I like to say point. most of this movie, I was like, Greg, you should wear that. Greg, you should wear that. Oh, Greg, you should yes. wear that. Mm-hmm. And like, Greg's like, yeah, it's not my style, meh, meh, meh. And I'm like, Greg, you should wear that. Greg, you should wear that. Greg, you should wear that. There are um, some fits in this and in American Paris that Gene Kelly definitely got off. Like. Mm-hmm. Well, tell it shit. Well, tell it shit. Well, I know you guys can quote this movie, but any any last thoughts on singing in the rain before we do the pivot? Gotta dance. I knew it. I fucking knew it. <laughs> I feel like that if we had a soundboard like Rasslecast, that would have to become one of our <laughs> one of one of the drops. I'm, I'm the aware drops. I live on in my horrible laugh on Rasslecast, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Oh man! I'm under attack. <laughs> oh man! I'd like to just give a shout out to the singing in the rain sequence. Like actually, yeah, that's pretty impressive to be able to do and look as as tight and nice. We'll just be dumped on by a cosmic amount of water. In a wool suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also it, it just is, look like you're having a nice time while doing it. Yeah. It is a song that literally makes me want to sing and dance in the rain. It makes me want to get a pair of rain boots, waterproof socks, and a poncho and fucking just go out there and do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said to Kat while we were watching that scene. I think it's funny that it's, it's I think, technically the most iconic scene 
one of an all in film and I and it's the last one that we actually talk about. So I think that's I think it's interesting how there's so much more to the movie than that just one scene that's much more there to appreciate and why the movie has such a staying power. So Gene Kelly, you're kinda shit, but good job, buddy. I mean, there are so many directors that and choreographers over the years that were kind of a shit. I know yeah. I pulled the Bob Fosse comparison. And that was because Bob Fosse, also a shit. Yeah. That was not because I feel like Bob Fosse is a nice man I'd like to grab a cup of coffee with. <laughs> yeah. And I know, Kat, you said you never watched. Well, I don't think you would ever watch Tar, or at least not now. But I think that's one of the themes and one of the questions of Tar is how far are you willing to go for perfection? Um, which, granted, you know, victims are still victims, so, uh, but, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I am in no way trying to discredit anything that anyone went through working on stuff like this, because obviously that's a whole situation. Yeah. And you can tell sometimes when you look at Cosmo's eyes that he is prepared to do a murder. (laughs) I'm laughing, but I know what you mean. Yes. And, and all of that is great. (laughs) <laughs> hilarious yeah. but I mean, also he's... and this in no way excuses that bad behavior but like it adds a texture that does not exist in movies now yeah yeah i'm not saying it should happen right but like most of these movies i feel like have such an arm's length between the people who are in them and the people who are making them that even in, in a situation like this where the guy who choreo- choreographed the whole thing that's making you angry is in this scene with you. Like, at least then there's some actual contact between the people, which I do think creates interesting dynamics that we don't have a lot of incidentally anymore. Yeah. So I know, Kat, you just compare film what we're in today versus Singing in the Rain. In my review, I wrote a painful reminder of how swaggerless and dull film and television are today. <laughs> I had this wild thought of what if I watch a Fincher movie after watching Singing in the Rain? Like, what if I watch Social Network? The tonal, not only tonal whiplash, but this like the the aggressively dull tones of that movie. So I'm gonna do you one better. Think about watching the new Little Mermaid movie oh. in the same week you watched this. That's what I did. What was that experience like? I mean. I don't want to say anything bad about the Little Mermaid movie because I think everybody should go see it and support Halle Bailey. However, comma. That movie is the epitome of textureless. Ooh. And a lot of that is because they, like, didn't build mermaid tails for these girls. They added them in post. Oh. Yeah, no, I mean, most of their wigs are largely CGI because they are underwater, but they look different. Like, her wig is locks, but the pieces that move underwater are individual strands of hair. Aquaman did it better. And we should obviously all go support it because Halle Bailey is wonderful and she deserves to be supported. And if it isn't supported, Disney is never going to to take swings like this again. And we're going to be stuck in white person heteronormative hell forever. But watching two major movie musicals in a week... One of which is Singing in the Rain, and one of which is the new Little Mermaid movie. 
Besides what the script tells her to want, I don't feel Halle Bailey wanting anything. Mm. But you can feel the the palpable wants of everybody else in this movie. Yeah. Again, don't abuse your actors. Maybe. <laughs> Crazy idea, I know. <clears throat> call call me old fashioned, but but like, what are we doing? When we've already kind of reached the pinnacle of movie musicals, like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And and I'm not saying don't make new animated stuff, but make it interesting. I feel like Chicago is the point that a lot of people credit as the point of no return. I'm sorry, I'm going to my movie musical terror, and I will be quick, but, you know. Go, go Chicago for it. Chicago is this point right. that people, like, credit as the point of no return, right? Where they're like, oh, well, now they realize movie musicals can be really profitable in, like, the 2010s and 20-aughts and whatever. So everyone's going to start doing them. And I was like, yeah, okay, great. Do they understand what made Chicago successful? Going to guess the answer is no. It, yeah. it is, in fact, no. And not just no, it's no. Yeah. And that's often the case when you have a movie that's lightning in a bottle. Everyone wants to try to replicate the success of that movie. But you would hope and, uh, that with uh, everyone yeah. shooting Scattershot for 20 years now, yeah, more Some... of them would have hit something. Yeah. Like, Mamma Mia hit, Mamma Mia Here We Go Again hit. Hairspray yeah. kind of hit. Yeah, that was big in culture. I remember. Yeah. That's basically it, right? There, yeah, yeah. There oh, was La La was. Man. I mean, I saw La La Land in theaters. <laughs> and I, podcast audience cannot see your face. <laughs> That's good because that, it was well, awful. But well, that that yeah. I mean, that movie from a box office and critical standpoint did hit. I personally did not like La La Land because I did not like the relationship between Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. I thought they were bad for each other. They were awful I, for each other. He was yeah. like the beast in the 2016 <laughs> Beauty and the Beast movie. He's just there to neg her and piss her off. And then she's like, but yeah. he loves me. No, he doesn't. No. no, he doesn't. Gene Kelly is a more believable lover than fucking Ryan Gosling with yeah. his goddamn keyboard ever fucking was. Christ. That was one thing that came to mind uh, during the scene where Don and Don is serenading Kathy for the first time. And first of all, my thought is, oh, okay, no wonder she's falling for him. He's charming as shit. But then after that, when they're dancing and as the scene plays out, I'm like, uh, La La Land tried to replicate this and fell on its face. You can't replicate that kind of chemistry. You can't replicate that kind of art, no matter how much you try. Which is odd because Damien loves singing in the rain. You can tell from like, just from Babylon, you can tell he loves singing in the rain. So it's really kind of wild that you guys... I, I haven't seen La La Land, so I can't comment on it. But mm-hmm. it's kind of wild that you guys feel that that movie did not hit the mark. And I, and to be honest, I, I've heard similar things from other folks, too. So Because even if he did just a carbon copy of singing in the rain in La La Land, that like, you know, a dance oh, yeah. musical, you know, that should have hit. But... It was yeah. it was mixed from what I heard from. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's obvious that he was inspired by it, but maybe a little too much. Maybe I mean because it's yeah. like you love it, and part of you wants to imitate it, but part of you wants to have your own signature for it. But maybe he should have reached out to other mm-hmm. actual like yeah. you know people who were kind of involved in those those movies, mm-hmm. at, at least older folks back then, to uh, to kind of you know make it hit, but. 
I recommend Babylon, but it is a cocaine movie. So <laughs> if you got three hours to burn, go for it. But even talking about the parallels, like you'll see like immediately the parallels between Singing in the Rain and Babylon. Like it's not even it's a little bit gross how like how one to one everything is, but uh it, it's kind of a out there movie that I, I did like though. My daddy's podcast is called Hyphenation. It's the world's greatest podcast. Barack Obama proofed. On Hyphenation, my daddy talks about all kinds of cool things. And sometimes I'm on the podcast too. Sometimes he has his friend Marcus on. Sometimes he stays up really late and he's tired the next day. But it's worth it. But he loves his podcast and I love his podcast. So I really want you to listen to Hyphenation. So daddy doesn't get sad. He really doesn't get sad though because he has me. Oh wait, please listen to Hyphenation. Thanks y'all. I love the podcast. So please, please, please try to join. But if you know it. This is Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. It's about five o'clock in the morning. That's the Homicide Squad, complete with detectives and newspaper men. A murder has been reported from one of those great big houses in the 10,000 block. You'll read about it in the late editions, I'm sure. You'll get it over your radio and see it on television. Because an old-time star is involved, one of the biggest. But before you hear it all distorted and blown out of proportion, before those Hollywood columnists get their hands on it, maybe you'd like to hear the facts, the whole truth. If so, you've come to the right party. You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion, with two shots in his back and one in his stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. The poor dope. He always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got himself a pool. Only the price turned out to be a little high. But uh, we have to do the pivot. We have to talk about Hollywood, terror, central USA. (laughs) We have to talk about Sunset Boulevard. So, Kat. Yay! When we did our episode for our favorite characters, Norma Desmond was someone that, that you selected and looking at this movie for the first time i've never done this when i finished watching the movie i immediately watched it back so i can pick up on everything that i missed and incredible movie one of my favorites of the year so far mm-hmm. so cat we're, we're going to give you the space we're going to let you talk about sunset boulevard and you love this movie so much okay so first of all for those of you listening at home i really truly had half a mind to uh roll up this podcast this evening in a robe and a turban uh but i did not do that because it was a hair wash day and my hair was taking a really long time to get situated and i didn't want to ruin it so she does wear it well though oh yeah okay so norman desmond to me is truly like a hamlet or Macbeth level tragic figure for women in a way that does not really exist. 
one thing that I think is really interesting about this movie is it's listed as a comedy on most sites. Like a black comedy, yeah. Which it is in some ways, but in a lot of ways it's not. That is a a tragic sink your teeth into it role. Yeah. But it also is that like she doesn't give up. She is so determined and so tough and she is trying so hard the whole time that to me it doesn't make it funny it makes it really sad yeah if you if you watch the movie from her perspective i can definitely agree to that i also wonder how much of it being listed as a comedy is due to the commonality of the like delusional woman trope Mm. yeah if this were a man I feel like this would be taken very much more seriously. And I actually have an example that probably sounds very off the wall, but I stand by. Because I am a weird musical theater person, I would like to turn everybody's collective attention to the character of Gus the Theater Cat from Cats, played by Ian McKellen in the movie, played by a bunch of other people in the show, who's basically the same character, right? They are at a a time period where the theater is being given way to movies. So it's not silent movies versus theater. It's theater versus moving pictures at all. And uh, Ian McKellen is like, I just wish that people would remember the theater. And I was a great actor once. And every single cat is like, yeah, you were, you were great. And this is a fucking cat. (laughs) Okay, yes. Now, admittedly, it is a cat with a penis, which for some reason we have decided is more serious than human women. But it is a cat. Yes, yes. To quote Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber, Hal, it's about cats. (laughs) But somehow this character is given more seriousness, legitimacy, and credence then Norma Desmond and Andrew Lloyd Webber also wrote the musical theater adaptation of Sunset Boulevard. Oh, wow. So I get to be extra salty about this. And it's an even better comparison than I bet you thought it was. Hilarious. Is this, is this the segment on the show where we bash Andrew Lloyd Webber? I'm down if, it, if that's it. I mean, no, this is a segment where I do that because I do okay. research. Hilarious. That's Cinderella. Like, I. Listen, if we're going to talk about Bad Cinderella, we're going to be here all night. This is going to be an eight-episode <laughs> podcast series. Um, but also, like, I was chatting with a couple of friends of my dad. My dad is years old. And Hilarious. a bunch of his friends and I and and him and everybody kind of got lunch this week. And I mentioned, oh, I'm watching Sunset Boulevard this weekend for my podcast. And all of them went... It's such a shame what that bitch did to William Holden. Woo-wee! Hey, yo. Hey, now. And I was like, what? And they were all like, she had her moment. And she couldn't let anybody else live. And I was like, you're all really dear to my father and you're all old, so I can't fight you because I'd win. Hilarious. Sorry, Dad, I love you. Come on the show, but... Yeah, um, come on, show are are they forgetting Joe Gillis's arc in that movie? <laughs> I mean, they don't care. Yeah, because they're yeah. they're all conditioned to see unreasonable in air quotes women as the villain. So from yeah. their perspective, she's been yeah. famous. She got what she deserved, 
and now she can't hack it as a regular person. Well, we've all had to hack it as a regular person, so she can deal with it. Mm. And, like, that's... That, that is glossing over the serious mental health issues that this character is experiencing. It's not even and about that, though. Like, in my mind, it's not about the mental health issues. It's about the fact that we as viewers are all complicit in this thing that we did to someone. Yeah. The idea that this person that we put on a pedestal when she was, I think they say, 15 years old, and then abandoned because why? Yeah. We didn't like the sound of her voice. She couldn't sing. She was 24. Yeah. And this is what happens. This is a direct reaction to what happens when you cast off a human being like an, a sweater with a hole or an ashtray that chipped. Yeah. This is why the Hollywood establishment outside of Paramount hated this movie, because they didn't like being called out like that. And Billy Wilder was like, good, fuck you. Although watching this now, having watched some like it hot, like three times in a short amount of time, because I need emotional support, has showed me that like, I really feel that Billy Wilder had a lot of empathy for women in show business. Yeah. In a way that not a lot of other male directors do. Yeah. Like Sugar is played for laughs a lot, but her like dreams and hopes are legitimate. And her heartbreaks are portrayed legitimately. And, like, yes, there is, like, for a laugh. But everything the guys want are for sure for a laugh. Yeah. And those are, in a lot of cases, higher stakes than what she wants. She's like, I just want a guy that doesn't steal my money, dump coleslaw on me, and leave in the middle of the night. (laughs) And Billy Wilder's like, get it, queen. That is what you deserve. Go off. That's good thinking of Double Indemnity 2, which is another Billy Wilder movie I love, and just thinking that this guy wrote some incredible roles for women, uh, certainly at, certainly for the time. And yeah. two of them have been turned into Broadway musicals. I've actually watched four Billy Wilder movies this year. Well, I think three new ones in the apartment last year. And I think he's a very talented He's a very talented filmmaker. And I think for Sunset Boulevard, I think the reason I love it a lot is because he really balances the macro and the micro so well that if you kind of think about what the studio system was for Hollywood, you can you can see why the transition from silent to the talkies, why it would have broke Norma. But also, if you look at the individual characters, not only uh, William Holden's character, but also the first husband. I mean, he he's basically Max. gaslit her through their divorce in like how many decades of that. And so the idea that the only person who has any empathy for her is Cecil B. DeMille, which I, I love mm-hmm. him, him popping up in this movie and like their interaction. I fully love it. Max, like I, the more I think about Max as a character, the more that he upsets me because he like, Hunted her as a child. Yes. Yeah. yeah and Max, he Ma- claims that he tried to protect her, but in doing that, he did not protect her, her at all. He protected himself. Yeah. And and the movie makes it seem like he's benevolent. And I know I sound very upset, but that's because I'm upset. As you should be. As you should be. Yes. Everyone in this movie is mean to her. Everybody in this movie treats her poorly. The narrator treats her poorly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gillis. Yeah. It shows not only this desire 
to be someone again, but she shows a desire to work. Sure, her screenplay is bad, whatever, but, like, she clearly she still watches movies she still does impressions she still does exercises so she can dance because she knows that's what's popular in the pictures at this time if you gave her a role as a mom in a movie she probably wouldn't be pleased about it but she'd do it because it's work but instead everybody put her in her fucking house with her fucking mothballs and max helped them do it he was the most complicit in it, I think. Yeah, Max, Max, who mentions discovering her at 16 and has basically been with her ever since. And then sets mm-hmm. her up to just get hurt again, because then maybe she'll listen to him again. And even, uh, is, is her name Betty? I feel like her name's Betty, because every woman is named... Betty Schaefer is her fucking name. Fucking every woman is named Betty in these goddamn movies. All, all of the ones <laughs> who are like, I have career aspirations, meh, whatever. I like Betty. Yay, women with career aspirations. But even she makes fun of him. Or her. And like, come on. I think she literally calls her a fossil at one point. Does she? Damn, I must have missed that. But I mean, everyone took pot shots at Norma. So. Right. Except, except Cecil. Except but Cecil. Even- but even he doesn't have the... He doesn't think that she can handle being talked to as an adult person. That's true, too. That is very true as well. If one person at one point, since they put her in that fucking house by herself, had talked to her as an adult, there is no movie. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I I think for people who, especially like older generations who think she is the terrorist in this movie, I think at the final scene when Holden is basically telling her the truth, he's doing it in such a crass way unsensitive way that on one hand people are like well yes he's telling the truth but he's gonna die for telling the truth well no he's he's gonna die because he's a fucking dickhead <laughs> and, he, he, and he's being purposefully mean when the situation does not call for it and i think on one hand when he's dealing with betty and he's trying to like eject her out of his life i actually appreciate the fact that he knows he's a shit and he's like you can't be around me. I'm a shit. And so she cries. She leaves. It's fucked up. But at least he's smart enough to know I'm going to ruin this girl's life. Let me get her, yeah, her, that her is... first marriage. But but you can't do the same thing with Norma, who's that sensitive of a character. I don't buy that, though. Why not? Because he, like, doesn't. He rolls up at the end and is like, A. And she's like, A. And he's like, don't do that. And she's like, I won't. By doing that, he's undermining all of the stuff that he's done been doing. Because boys do this. And you might not notice this because I don't think either of you date men. But, like, men roll up into your lives and are like, I can't date you because I'm bad for you. And then you're like, oh, my God, you're bad for me. Uh, Go away. And they're like, okay, I will. And then they roll back up and they're like, Hey girl, and you're like, no, and they're like, just reminding you, still bad for you, and you're like, great, thank you, thank you so much for noticing, and then you get all stuck in their fucking heads again, and there you go. Uh, I, I've not been put in that torture rack. It's like, <laughs> so <laughs> like it's, it's all well and good to say that he's honorable by like setting that boundary in air quotes, but at the same time, by coming back to check in that that boundary is still being placed, he's inherently undermining his own boundary setting. 
And not only is he undermining it, he's implying that he doesn't think she's capable of respecting that because she's a woman. And that also, yeah. in its own way, kind of rips the scab off of those pre-existing that, like, she's probably only just now starting to feel comfortable and built up in that that boundary, right? She's like, it's a bummer, but whatever, I'll be fine. It'll be fine. And he just comes back and pops that scab right off. Okay. And we're back. And, like, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. I can, I can see your point. I can see your point. And and so, to me, that, that tells me that he is a white fuckboy guy who he's dating, like, yeah. one of our best friends. Or one of his best friends. Like, he should have mm-hmm. more respect. He just doesn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. We we fully agree to that, yes. Oh, yeah. 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 And and so that's... I don't even think he does that right. <laughs> I mean, he, he doesn't... All he, all he right? does is take advantage of women until one of them gets fed up with it, and she shoots him. Bitch, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, yes, uh, yes. If Betty had like a, a glizzy, she she would have took the shot. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Greg, yeah. what are your thoughts on Sunset? And I guess in particular the Norma character, and also like the the characters in the universe around her. The whole performance by Gloria Swanson uh, read to me is just um, well, not just because there are a lot of layers to it, but just one whole big trauma response because this this movie becomes a lot sadder and a lot more fucked up when you stop to think about what the character of Norma Desmond just as you know what the real life actress Gloria Swanson had to do had to go through in order to get to the level of fame she was at during her peak yeah. Like, yeah, like DeMille, DeMille mentions, you know, working with her at 17. Max mentions discovering her at 16. Uh, fun fact, Gloria Swanson was actually 15 when she was discovered. Wow. Um, discovered at 15, married at 17. I'm going to stop there because that then we'll go down the whole deep, dark rabbit hole of problematic relationships in Hollywood during the silent era. But, <laughs> yeah. When you think about that, when you think about the shit that young starlets had to do in order to to achieve uh, their their level of success, you know, something that continued long, 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 long after, you know, the silent era, long, long after this movie was released. It's only been six years since we discovered what a creep Harvey Weinstein was. Yeah. Um, Here's looking at you, Shirley Temple's mom. Yep. (laughs) Oh yeah, and you th- and you think about like the silent the silent era when there was a lot less oversight and therefore the treatment was a lot worse. Norma Desmond, the character Gloria Swanson, the actress, the the real life experiences that they went through that certainly Gloria Swanson seemed to be channeling when she was playing the character of Norma Desmond, and you realize oh this isn't just some delusional washed up actress who, you know, just misses doing movies that badly and wants to take back what she had. This was, from the time she was a fucking child, her livelihood, and she had to, you know, probably do some unspeakable things at an age where she shouldn't have had to do those unspeakable things. Not that there's any age where it's appropriate to do unspeakable things. but It does, it does make me wonder, also, just because, you know, now... This is a role that so many people have played through the Broadway adaptation. 
I mean, initially it was played by Patti Lapone, who was discovered when she was still in high school, and Glenn Close when it, it debuted on Broadway. And that's a character that shouldn't still be relevant like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is. For every industry, it seems like. Yeah. The story could just as easily be about an actress whose heyday was in the 80s and who hasn't been a star in 30 plus years. If they were to remake it, I hope to God they did it like that. That would be so cool. (laughs) Could you imagine if she lived in like a house that looked like fucking Xanadu? (laughs) Rest in peace, Olivia Newton-John. This is has to be the best movie about Hollywood, right? Because I think it's between this and the player, basically, right? I think that this is probably the best movie that's ever been made about time changing in Hollywood. Okay. I can't necessarily say that it's the best Hollywood movie because I feel like there are so many Hollywood movies and I've I've barely touched on any of them. Okay, yeah. But I uh, I take it back, actually. This is probably the best movie about the repercussions of Hollywood. (laughs) That's the way I would describe it. Okay. It was like the first major motion picture that actually had the... Uh, Billy Wilder was the first one to have the backbone to point his fingers at the Hollywood studio system and be like, this is fucked up, the way that, uh, the way that we use people. Yeah. And of course, Louis, Louis B. Mayer, you know, reamed him out for that, and Billy Wilder was like, fuck you, Louis B. Mayer, you're worse than any of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I I really do love the player, man. The player is fucking wild. We covered MASH, and that was a terrible Robert Altman piece, but uh, the player is actually a, a really great Robert Altman piece. So I think the last thing I think I want to cover for myself for Sunset Boulevard is uh, we, we talked about Double Indemnity a little bit, but I believe the cinematographer was the same one for this as well as Double Indemnity. And the look of this movie, and both of those movies, they just look really astounding. For Sunset Boulevard, they had an opportunity to shoot in color, but purposely chose to shoot in black and white to keep that noir look. And it was a great choice to do. And I I'm, I'm, I definitely would want to see what Norma's car looks like in color because like the cheetah print has to look insane. Um, but uh, I, I appreciate the photography of this movie. They, I think in all, all respects, they really did a great job of this movie. I would like to especially give a shout out to, we went to go see this in a theater and uh, I, I dressed as Norma Desmond. I wore a floor length duster with like cigarette trousers under it and a turban and a big <laughs> necklace and little sunglasses and the whole nine. Right. And uh, the movie ends, you know, I'm ready for my close up. And the guy sitting in front of me turned around to grab his coat and he sees me and he goes, ah! <laughs> She's here! Did, you, did you make the eyes at him? You should have made the eyes at him. I, just kind of, I, I did a little like mini, mini version because I, I was tired, man. Um, <laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. But that makes me very happy and feel yeah. very, very accomplished. Again, I just notice a, a lot of men being like, she's scary and I don't like her. And a lot of women being like, good for her. <laughs> yeah. And I know you brought up the idea that kind of being a little thrown as it's described as a as a black comedy the first time i watch it i actually did not think it was that funny i was like 
okay, there's a dead monkey. Uh, there's there's a fucking yeah. broke boy. He's he's a scammer. <laughs> like he can't write for shit, mm-hmm. but he's trying to. I'm like trying to figure out like what's going on. When I watch it the second time, I understand where the humor is coming from. Look at them in the front offices, the masterminds. They took the idols and smashed them. The Fairbankses, the Gilberts, the Valentinos. And who have we got now? Some nobodies. Don't blame me. I, I'm not an executive, just a writer. You are writing words, words, more words. Well, you've made a rope of words and strangled this business. <laughs> but there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue. You wake up the monkey. And I'm trying to be, you know, a bit balanced about viewing it. But when I watch it a second time at the end, when Norma's walking down the staircase and Max thinks he's doing this, you know, massive favor for her and everyone just like staring at her. And I was like, okay, like Kat said, we are all complicit in this action that destroyed Norma. And, you know, fuck this shitty writer, fuck this B-level writer. Norma is the one who's victimized. And so I, I think it was a, a really strong performance, like Greg said, from Gloria Swanson. And an incredible dismount, an incredible, incredible dismount. Yeah, I think there is humor in it. But I also think that describing it as a comedy... It, it underserves it. No, no. it it's I, I would also argue it undermines... Uh, a lot of the pain that women especially experience yeah and that is probably a dangerous thing we should stop doing maybe uh just a bit just Just a bit bit. i'm just spitballing here yeah man yeah this is a hell of a double feature pick man i think it is a better black and white but i would love to see everything like in photo color because that house is kind of wild. <laughs> like, yeah. I want to know what color the garments are, man. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, for real, for real. But, oh, my God. Oh, it's the, the fucking the shot in the pool. I didn't appreciate how hard that was until I mm-hmm. watched it the second time. Like, I'm really surprised they got the, the dead man shot. Like I would also great. like to state for the record yeah. that when I came to visit the apartment building I now live in, I... No. Don't say it again. <laughs> well, all I'm going to say is that it had a tennis court and a pool. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, you know, there's also a grand staircase. And I could say the, the oh, yeah. price is a little high. I think, I think we went with the shits with this one, guys. Mm-hmm. So whenever, whenever I put together the schedule, a big piece of it was randomized, but... Some of it was kind of put together with a little bit of kind of thought to like theme. But I think of the pair, I think like all about even so like it hot. I think that may be number one, but I think this is like number two and next week. So when we do Vertigo and To Kill a Mockingbird, I don't think, well, I haven't seen them both. So, but I don't think that they necessarily gel but i think that the movies individually are so great anyway so what how how close together did they come out four years uh 58 and 62 so we can definitely talk about the the change in the temperament of that time period and how those play into how those films were 
received. 1958-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1962-1